This podcast is sponsored by Bang & Olufsen. A concert recording, a new symphony, even your favourite podcast. It matters how it sounds. Peter Bang and Sven Olufsen knew this when they founded their Danish audio brand in 1925, and their vision endures today. For nearly a century, Bang & Olufsen has been pushing the boundaries of audio technology and continues to sit at the forefront of acoustic innovation, because sound matters. Find out more at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. Hello, and welcome to the first ever edition of All the Right Notes, the podcast from BBC Music Magazine. My name is Jeremy Pound, and I am the magazine's deputy editor. Over the next eight weeks, I and my BBC Music Magazine colleagues, Charlotte Smith, Michael Beek, and Steve Wright, will be hosting eight All the Right Notes podcasts. We ask important and intriguing questions relating to classical music, each time in the company of an expert guest. We begin this week with the question, what is the point of a conductor? For which I am joined by Zachary Oromo. Zachary may well have asked this very question himself once, as he began his musical life as an orchestral violinist, rising to the position of leader of the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra. Sitting right at the front of the orchestra evidently piqued his curiosity, as in 1989 he began studying conducting, thus setting in motion a glittering career that would lead to the top jobs at, among others, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic Orchestra, and the BBC Symphony Orchestra, where he has been chief conductor since 2013. I caught up with him at the end of a day's rehearsal with the orchestra at May Vale Studios in London to ask him about the dark arts of his chosen profession. So I'm here at May Vale Studios with Zachary Oromo, the chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. And I'm going to start by asking you a fairly, what I hope doesn't sound a rude question, but a fairly blunt one. What is the purpose of a conductor? Yes, that's a very good question and, and a valid question as well. I mean, because for the audience, it, it seems that the conductor is the person that, you know, doesn't make any sound, but comes in front of the orchestra and, and waves her or his arms and then gets all the applause at the end. But actually the conductor is the one who brings the music to the orchestra. So the orchestra has parts. They have their own part mostly. And, and the conductor has everyone's parts. So the conductor is there to bring a musical vision of the piece that is performed. The conductor needs to be able to decide about the style of playing, the intonation, about coordination of various sections in the orchestra, balance, so which section might be too loud, might be too soft, and also the, the overall dynamics of the piece. So basically the conductor is the one who actually controls the performance, both in rehearsal and in concert. But that's only one part. The more important part is actually to, to seduce the orchestra to play at their best. And that's the hard part about conducting because many people can, you know, can master the, the music they, they conduct and, and so on, but, but only a few can kind of really seduce orchestras to, to surpass themselves. And, and that's where personality comes into question. A while back, many years ago, I took part in a little experiment it was when the BBC was filming a new series called Maestro at the Opera, and they wanted one or two journalists to conduct an orchestra and a singer. The important things that the journalists had never conducted before, the idea is to throw a complete rookie in and see how they got on. Now, the piece I was conducting was, it was Una Fertiva Lagrima by Donizetti, and it was in 6-8, so it was actually fairly easy just to beat time. And the orchestra was told beforehand, you must follow exactly 
what the conductor does. And it was fine, I got through it. But I was told, of course, if you weren't there, the orchestra would have managed it fine without you and the, the singer would have been fine. But presumably, there are actually also some pieces which are so technically difficult that a conductor has to be there. You couldn't just have the orchestra doing it by themselves. What are these sort of pieces? Well, is it particular time signatures which you really do need someone at the helm to actually look after it? Yes. I mean, in, in terms of coordinating, yes. Start from Rite of Spring, Stravinsky. Let's think about Turangalila Symphony by Messia. Let's think about various contemporary scores. Harrison Burt Whistle, for example, notoriously difficult music to conduct. This coordination part is, of course, of course, one part of the conduct conductor's work. But equally difficult it is to, to, to coordinate people's musical ideas rather than just the timing. So, for instance, how to make a Brahms symphony sound like Brahms. It, it doesn't really happen on its own, even though musicians in orchestras are normally very highly educated, excellent uh, masters of their own instruments, uh, and in many cases also great chamber musicians. But it's just to kind of to have an overall vision of the sound of the orchestra uh, that is wanted for a certain style of music that the conductor is responsible for. Now you've got a lovely orchestra to play with on a, a near daily basis in the BBC Symphony Orchestra. And so obviously you have had the chance to mould it around your ideas, you know the individual players, you know the texture of the orchestra. However, if you're a guest conductor and you only have that orchestra for, say, a couple of days, a few rehearsals, and then you're into a concert, how easy is it to achieve what you want as a guest conductor with an orchestra which you don't actually know that well? It's always a matter of, of give and take. It's always a matter of, uh, also for me, it's a matter of kind of just finding my way around the orchestra's way of playing. And there is no value in trying to impose things. It's more like a collaboration, especially with guest conducting. And I just had a recently a, a lovely experience with the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra, which are, who are just uh, amazing in, in every way. And it was only the second time I conducted them, but but it felt like, you know, I had a feeling that they, they were really kind of making music with me. And, and I think this is the key, that kind of, if you are able to just invite the orchestra to make music with you in the situation, in the moment, then it works really well. But if you have sort of very strong preconceived ideas that you want things exactly like something, then, then it might not be so successful for guest conducting. You've got to kind of take an attitude where you are kind of the guest and, and you bring your own things as a guest, but you can't still dictate where the host sort of has, has her or his glasses or, or, or um, plates or something. Yes, I understand. With the orchestras of which you have been the permanent conductor, chief conductor or principal conductor or music director, have you moulded them all in the same way or was your approach in Birmingham very different from Stockholm or very different from here in, with the BBC Symphony Orchestra? I have changed a lot as a musician and as a person I have developed, I hope, and and of course it's been very, very different. And uh, I've had these uh, decade-long relationships with orchestras. I've now been 10 years with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I was 10 years with the CBSO. I was 13 years with the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic and so on. So it's kind of uh, also 10 years with the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra, of course. 
And each of these projects have, have been actually quite different for me. So musically speaking, but also humanly speaking, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, they've all been like individual projects, almost like individual children of yours. And it's really evolved during, during time because also I'm always trying to communicate with, with my players and, and kind of we, we grow together. With the sound, when, how long do you would say would you say it takes to mold an orchestra's sound into the way you want it? Because people say that an orchestra develops a particular string sound, for instance, or the brass sounds in a particular way. How long does it take to develop that? It depends where you start. Yeah. When I started with the BBC Symphony, I was actually pretty happy with the string sound because my predecessor Yezhi Belohlavik, of course, was a specialist in that, and we even have have the same kind of taste for this kind of warm, flowing string sound. So there wasn't so much to change there. It's more like in other things, maybe articulation, uh, dynamics, uh, different styles of playing and so on, that I wanted to work on. Uh, and yeah, with different orchestras, it's been very different. But, but I would say for an orchestra to feel like my own, it's taken me four to six years of steady, steady work. and and. After that, it starts feeling yes. Now, now they, you know, they are with me completely, and and they understand what I want. But it, it's it's such an interesting process because, of course, also I as a conductor change in the course of that time. How much would you say you you have changed, kind of personality wise? Is it, or is it your ideas of interpretation, or both? I don't think you can separate those. Yeah. And the personality is is something that that you know. Intrinsically, it maybe stays the same, but but then you, you you grow as a human, you you grow as a person, and you learn to you know react, I guess, in a more mature way to to situations, and 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 also maybe set your goals a little bit differently. That's all to do with how the music then comes out and and what the aspirations are for interpretation. But that hasn't changed. That I I'm always looking for this kind of organic kind of music making which grows out of the score and and also that the kind of parameters of playing the music are set by the material itself yeah not by something i want it's by something the composer's written and and how i believe it should be brought to life because it's it's always bringing to life things that are, that are actually dead dots on paper and of course you studied under Yorma Panula um, at the Sibelius Academy and we're now familiar with lots of conductors who did likewise in England. When you see other conductors who have studied under him, would you be able to spot one of his students straight away from certain traits? Or have you all developed in your own way after lessons so to such an extent that actually you've kind of gone your own separate ways? Jorma didn't teach us to be similar yeah. with each other. He taught us distinctly to be different. He gave us in a way, a method of approaching music and conducting, but not a method of technically conducting. So uh, this is really interesting because many teachers uh, create clones of their own or of each other, but, but Jorma was really, really different in that sense. So he made, made sure that all his students conducted according to their own personality and according to their own musical needs. This is, I think, what sets him pretty much apart from, from any other big conducting teacher. And of course, you were a violinist before you became a conductor. 
I've always wondered, I'm never surprised that violinists become conductors because you were a concert master as well, of course, so you were kind of almost semi-leading, that you were leading the orchestra anyway. Does it feel like a very natural step up to go from being the leader of an orchestra to actually conducting it? Well, there are examples of people that have done it, but but it's absolutely not a must. Mm. I mean, in a way, it's the longest step in musical life from the first desk of the first violins to, to the conductor's podium. On the other hand, when I sort of made that step, it, it was... I had a lot of support from my friends and colleagues and in Finland, and also I had many precedents because uh, most Finnish conductors actually have been orchestra musicians, not necessarily concertmasters, but musicians from the orchestra. Mm. So this was kind of nothing unusual, actually, in Finland. Yeah, in some cases, of course, as a concertmaster, you, if, especially if the conductor happens not to be quite so good, <laughs> then you kind of, you, you have to be able to kind of take over the situation and, and, and rescue whatever is, is possible. And that has happened to me as well sometimes when I've, when I've led. <laughs> when and actually, when I, when I think about it, looking at some of the conductors around at the moment, they come from all areas of the orchestra, don't they? Because kind of Santu Ravali was a percussionist, I yes. believe, and then Susanna Melki was a cellist, a cellist and yes. Mark Elder was bassoonist. So yes. they do come from all, all walks of orchestral life. Isapekka is a horn player. And, and so on. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, not only string players, but string players, of course, have, have a special kind of possibility to mold an orchestra sound because so many musicians in symphony orchestras are string players. So if you have an idea about string playing and, and how you want it to sound, then it's really easy as a string player to kind of approach and give specific instructions, not just describe what you want, but actually give technical technical instructions. On the other hand, if you're a wind player or a brass player, it, it, it has other benefits. Yeah, no one's perfect, but everyone has, uh, I guess, something to, to cling on when you are at your most insecure, which sometimes happens. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, actually, that brings me back to the, the experiment I was mentioning earlier when I was did that brief moment of conducting. Is The first thing which really struck me was Firstly, that it was easy to bond with the string players because they are right in front of you. The violinist there, the violist there, cellist there. I was also really aware of the huge distance between you as a conductor and the back of the orchestra. The, 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 kind of the percussionists and the, the brass seemed quite a long way away. How do you go about bridging that gap so kind of everyone in the orchestra kind of feels equal and you don't just kind of communicate with the, the strings the whole time? That's, I think, where conducting technique, the manual technique of conducting, comes to the fore. Because if you are able to be as clear as possible, and also if you are able to facilitate the playing of those who, who are the furthest from you, then you can say you can master the orchestra. So it's to do with a certain kind of technical clarity and simplicity because after all, it's only fitting, you know, fitting things into a certain time frame. That's what the beat is. And, and also, it's, it's very much about preparation, about how you prepare things. So as a conductor, you always have to be ahead of the, the, the actual music. Not in terms of beating ahead, beating time ahead, but in terms of your thoughts. You have to know what comes next. And then you have to be able to prepare it in the right way. Because when it's happened, it's too late. To, to have an influence on that. And yeah, distances uh, can be 
quite a large issue sometimes. I mean, think about the Royal Albert Hall and and maybe a big choral piece where the where you know the the, the furthest choristers might be I don't know a hundred meters away or something. And I don't think it actually makes such a difference in case that your conducting technique is up to scratch in that sense. And also, of course, your ear needs to learn to be accustomed with, with the distances and to kind of compensate to the closeness of the strings, physical closeness of the strings, in relation to the faraway factor of, of some other sections. Uh, so the strings might sound very loud to you, but actually in the hall they might not sound that loud. And it's, um, it's also a matter of, of being able to relativize your ear when you balance the orchestra. How much do you sometimes stand away from the, the rostrum and go to the back of the hall so you can actually get an idea of what the balance is like? Or is your ear so well sort of tuned from where you're standing anyway that you, you think you can probably get it anyway? Many conductors use assistant conductors to, yeah. to kind of tell them what the balance is. And I, I do sometimes as well, of course. And, and in some, in some repertoires, it's really good to have that. On the other hand, I think a conductor should be able to decide the relative strength of each, each section from, from the conductor's podium. So I, I don't go out too often. Maybe on tour, when we have to quickly accustom to, 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 to a new hall, then, then I do it more. Now, one question I want to ask about is batons, which is a subject which has always fascinated me. Now, of course, some, most conductors, I'd say, use batons these days. Some don't. Klemperer famously did and then didn't, or was it the other way around? I can't remember. I think uh, he did and then didn't, mainly because I think he was unable to hold a baton. So, for those who don't know about conducting, what is the main purpose of the baton? The baton is is an extension of your arm when it works and functions as it should. So, the baton is a kind of a, because the tip of the baton is thin. But it's very visible because it's usually painted white. I've seen brown ones as well, but they don't work nearly as, as well. Uh, and so the eye kind of catches the movement of the tip of the baton, I think, especially from a distance, easier than the movement of the hand. Of course, because the hand has also fingers and the finger might, fingers might move in their own kind of ways and, and so on. So if you're not able to control your hand and you conduct with bare hands, there might be problems. On the other hand, the fingers can also be a very good expressive tool. I mean, Carlos Kleiber even used his fingers to kind of create a balance inside a horn section or something, which was pretty amazing. But I would say the baton facilitates playing together, but it's not an absolute must. I mean, you can conduct very well without a baton as well, as, as we have certainly seen many examples of. But certainly, especially if you have sort of long rehearsals, long rehearsal periods, the baton also makes the conductor's movement a little bit physically, a little bit easier. It's less training. On the other hand, it's, it's, it's an art to be able to master the tip of your baton. It's one thing that conductors should think about very carefully because often the tip of the baton does something else. It's different things from what, what, what I want it to do. And it's really to, to think that the, the, the baton is actually just an extension of, of your arm. Are you very precious about what baton you use? Are you kind of quite happy you could be wave anything and you'd be I okay with it? I pick up anything I have at hand. <laughs> and and, and uh, yeah, of course, I have a selection at home. I've gathered it over the years. But, but I've actually come to like more and more uh, very simple 
no frills carbon fiber battles that are kind of fairly light and also well balanced but it i mean i can i can use any battle mm. i find really and is it a case that it kind of less is more sometimes and this is actually where the baton comes in as well is that you sometimes see conductors almost criticized for over large gestures and actually a lot of it is actually knowing how to control it and keep your movements fairly not minimal but not over excessive yes i think so i mean the whole process of developing as a conductor is to find simplicity in a way that you don't actually dismiss the complexity of music but in order to make the complexity of music understandable to musicians uh, you need to simplify your gestures your language your kind of calligraphy as i like to call it so you really do just what is needed and of course then the personality and the expression comes to play as well because i've also seen conductors who master this kind of minimal motion very well but are totally unexpressive this is also dangerous i mean you need to sort of be expressive you need to convey with your hands also the emotion of the music but thereby also making sure that you don't overload your beat with emotional effects so what do you think when you kind of see that footage of sort of Strauss late in life where he's doing little more than kind of waggling a rather long baton? It's, what do you make of that? Do you think that yeah. the musicians were probably on autopilot to that stage? Yeah, or? if the orchestra would, would have sound fantastic, I, I wouldn't mind it. But I don't think anything I've heard him conduct has sounded all that good. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it, it, it depends on the, on the result. Yevgeny Bravinsky, he, he did almost nothing but the orchestra sounded amazing with him and of course Leningrad Philharmonic he was with them as chief conductor for 50 years with dictatorial powers so I mean yeah they better sound good but I mean it's more about the attitude the, the aspiration if you have no aspiration you just go there and and manage the time and then go away via the pay box then <laughs> then yeah fine but it's not making music really actually you mentioned the word dictatorial there which i just want to bring that up because there's that famous era of the sort of the scary conductors the george shells the fritz reiners of this world toscanini mm. you see less of that these days and today's conductors tend to be a lot more sort of collaborative i'd say with their musicians a lot more understanding kind of when you actually first set out to conduct, do you actually are you aware of the sort of personality you're molding within yourself, or is it just organic? You are who you are, and if the orchestra likes you, they like you. Or do you actually go in with a particular mindset of how you want to be perceived by your musicians? I don't work with my personality in that way. No, I, I'm 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 just how I am, and I'm a very very egalitarian and democratic person. But I also like very much quality. So I mean. I, am, I find myself being sort of collaborative and respectful to orchestras, but also demanding. And that's a kind of good combination these days, because I think also uh, the musicians are quite different from the days of the George Shells and, and Fritz Reiners. They mostly don't expect a sort of dictatorial position. They wouldn't even accept it because they are highly educated. You know, they are specialists in their own profession and... They want to be treated respectfully. And I think it's quite essential for a conductor today to, to sort of be able to, to get the results you need to get 
but without a sort of a dictatorial attitude. And does your previous experience of playing within the ranks of the orchestra help that? You actually know from conductors who have conducted you what works best with you. Well, I played such a long time ago that <laughs> I, I, I think I've sort of left that behind me in a way. But, but in the beginning it did, actually. I think it did, yes. So part of that is what we've been saying. It's, it's about building a team, isn't it? So presumably part of a principal conductor's key role or particularly on a music director's key role, is the appointment of new musicians, isn't it? What is the sort of turnover in orchestras such as the BBC Symphony Orchestra with musicians? Turnover is pretty minimal, actually, in the BBC. So uh, because this is an orchestra, when you arrive here, you don't really mostly want to go anywhere else. Of course, there are cases that, that have left the orchestra before retirement, to do something else or to play in another orchestra. That that does happen, but I mean, it, it's a pretty small number. Appointing new players, that's also a very democratic process these days in, in an orchestra like the BBCSO. So, so uh, the section has a big say, and also the colleagues, the nearest colleagues, like in the case of a wind player, it's, it's really the, the, the solo wind players that form the panel. The chief conductor is, is asked for an opinion, always. And sometimes it can weigh quite a lot, especially if there are two candidates that are kind of quite even and people can't quite make their minds about them. I have sort of clear opinions um, mostly about players that I want or that I don't want in the orchestra. But at the end, I'm not the one who's making the the final decision. I think it's good like that, that because these people will still be colleagues in the days when I have already been, I will have gone. So, I mean, they, they are choosing their colleagues for the long term. And and I can't actually think about so many professions where you can be in a sort of such a specialist organization and be involved in, in actually picking up, choosing your colleagues. It's quite unusual. But I think it's essential for the well-being uh, and development of orchestras these days. Are you expected to socialize with the players quite a lot outside rehearsal time or do you, is it best to keep your distance? I think it's best to keep a certain natural distance, but that doesn't mean that I, I, I couldn't sort of be friendly with, with some players and, and, and discuss quite normally. But I would say this happens mostly in rehearsal breaks or, or on tour maybe if there is some, some spare time. But, but here at home, I, I don't really socialize very much with, with them mostly. But this is actually not by sort of what is expected. It's more like I just like to be quiet and peaceful <laughs> between the rehearsals. Is there a different dynamic between the relationship between conductor and orchestra, depending on which country you're in? Is that, do you find there's a different national dynamic or is that was it actually yeah, more with one there, orchestra or the other? There are cultural differences. And, and uh, one thing that I always emphasize uh, to, to young conductors is that they should actually know at least a little bit about the culture where they are, where they are going to conduct. So if you go to Germany, you, you can certainly do a lot of things with German orchestras, but there are also things that you, you should not say or do or expect them to do. The same applies actually in any culture, in Scandinavia, in Britain, in Italy, for instance, in France. Just to be kind of aware of the, of the culture. And does that apply to audiences as well? Do you have to know how to respond to audiences in different countries or are they... You just you play the music and just see what happens. Yeah, you play the music, you see what happens. Uh, and there are some kind of characteristics that come into play. 
of course. And, and in some countries, you have this really exuberant kind of response to playing. And in others, it's more reserved, which doesn't mean that they like it less. It's just the way people behave together. But I'm not actually thinking about audience so much. <laughs> Does it worry you at all if people clap between movements or is it? No, I don't mind that. I mean, yeah. it, of, of course, sometimes it's annoying when the, when the sort of musical tension kind of falters because of that. But in Beethoven's time, people, you know, did all sorts of things during performances and it clearly didn't bother him so much. So, I mean, um, I don't think it's, it's, it's a big deal, actually. Yeah. I mean... If I'm a member of audience, it might disturb me more than when I'm performing. You mentioned the word insecurity earlier on. How self-critical are you as a conductor? Is it, do you kind of have huge doubts when you've finished a concert sometimes? Think, well, that didn't, that didn't quite work as I wanted it to. Or... Well, I mean, I know I can do it. I know I can do what I want to do, but it doesn't always go home so well. So yes, I am self-critical and... I mostly always, also now, by now I know, after having done this profession for 35 years, I know what I maybe might have done better. But sometimes there are circumstances that kind of just happen and, and you're not able to do your best to, to, to make it happen. And could have to do with personal life, it could have to do with health or just, you know, maybe changing in the orchestra if suddenly there's a pandemic happening then then you know you have completely different players suddenly and and all this so, i mean it's it's uh, there are many things that affect it and of course an orchestra is such a complex beast it's not like a string quartet where you've just got the four players and you can probably analyze quite quickly what needs changing with an orchestra there's so many different facets it must actually be does it ever seem overwhelming kind of how, how am I going to mould this piece with this vast array of kit in front of me? Yeah, when, when I went to the Berlin Philharmonic to conduct Rude Langor's First Symphony, which is a huge piece that no one really knows very well. And, and the score is kind of, it's massively overwritten. But on the other hand, it's also very, very interesting. It's written by a 17-year-old and... I mean, at, at first I felt like I was just bulldozed by the orchestra, but then slowly I started to sort of work on on balancing and, and things that I wanted to hear, I didn't hear, and so on. And orchestras usually react to that very well, and they kind of, they adapt very well into situations and and demands, and then it's usually fine. I mean, the worst thing is to be kind of overwhelmed, but then do nothing about it. You just have to boldly start working on it and and try to make sense of it. And usually it, it works quite well. Is there a feeling that a, an orchestra, particularly when it's enjoying itself, is a bit like a runaway train and you have to really sort of struggle to rein them in? Does that happen? Yeah, it does. And I think it's only good. I mean, that, that's where the extra sparkle comes. Uh, and, and of course, th there are works, there is music wh where that's not so appropriate. I mean, if you have that in Mahler 9, it might not be quite so good. But then if you have that in Mahler 1, it's great, you know, that sometimes al also the feeling that you have to sort of constantly energize and pull the orchestra is not very nice. I mean, you, you throw in something and then it, if it kind of sets on fire and everything kind of happens within its own laws, then after that, then that's the ideal situation, I think. Because mm. I have read accounts of some conductors where it has been 
flowing so well that they almost stop conducting entirely and they kind of they, mm-hmm. they don't exactly rest their baton down but they sort of reduce their movements to minimal and just let the let the players get on with it yeah you can do that but then you better be alert to the next thing that comes or maybe to the next little problem that is there because and i think it's yeah you can absolutely enjoy it for a little while but always have in your back, the, in the back of your mind that the next problem might be just around the corner and it usually is actually if you give up too much so you can't control everything but you have to be able to be prepared for eventualities in musical performance and what would you say has been your highlight as a conductor is there one particular moment where you thought this is why i do this job no i i don't really think think about it like that i mean in a way it's a cliche but ev- every concert is a highlight and actually even rehearsals are highlights in a way and i i just try to make make the most of it and you know serve my purpose as well as i can but i don't really put a hierarchy on on, on various things uh, you you live each moment as it comes yeah absolutely now finally you've been very generous with your time but um you mentioned langard just a second ago as being a particularly devilish work to conduct what are the works out there which kind of well i guess you you help program them so you've only got yourself to blame but what are the works out there which kind of put the fear of god into you for kind of a few weeks before you actually have to conduct them yeah sometimes uh, i have the thought you know this program seemed a good idea at the time <laughs> when it was decided but then yeah i mean yeah mala 3 mala 7 I like that. Uh, right of Spring, in a way, is not that difficult. But if you make a mistake, you're dead. I mean, it's just so so merciless somehow. But it could even be a Beethoven symphony sometimes. Mm. Like, how am I going to serve Beethoven? Uh, how can one possibly serve Beethoven? Beethoven 9 is one of those pieces. Also because it, the finale is so kind of bitty and, and, and consists of so many different elements and and facets how to make it sort of feel like a whole like a logical thing maybe it shouldn't i don't know but i mean those are the things that you you think on a meta level you think beyond the the nuts and bolts of the music beyond the you know do i beat in four do i beat in six but how do i create the line how do i make sense of the music am i right in thinking this or that character this or that is important those are the big questions that that quite often uh, one is perplexed with, and are actually conversely the best known works. Sometimes the most difficult to conduct because a people have heard them so many times anyway, and b there's always the danger of slipping into the comfort zone. Mm, I don't have that tendency because I always try to create music anew, even though it would be something people know, or even though I would have played it many many times. So I'm I'm never in a way in that comfort zone. I think other people might think differently, but but I'm kind of always looking for new ways. And just briefly, so what is it about Marla Three or Marla Seven which makes it so tricky to conduct? It's just the scale of it, and also the fact that Marla was himself a masterful conductor, and he gave so many clues, yet left so much open as well and um, to to make the right decisions in that context for 
the orchestra you happen to be conducting is a big deal. Now, I don't know how old you are now, and I'm not going to ask because I'm too polite, but some conductors have gone on to their 90s. I'm 57. You're 57. Can you see yourself going on until your, your eighth and your ninth decade? Possibly, yes, if, if I sort of will have the fortune to live so long and be healthy. But on the other hand, maybe I, I would maybe sort of make the rhythm of my work a little bit less dense than it's now. But I could certainly say that I, I think I might even enjoy it. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm sure in three or four decades' time, I'm st- you may well still be on the, on the podium. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time, Zachary. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. There's joy to be found in how we watch, listen to and feel the world around us. That's what drives innovation at Bang & Olufsen. From a design icon displayed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York to becoming the world's first technology brand to receive accreditation for a speaker designed for a circular economy. After almost a century, Bang & Olufsen continues to push boundaries in the world of sound and design. Based in the Danish countryside, Bang & Olufsen has a world-renowned innovation lab. This cutting-edge research and development facility produces the portfolio of award-winning headphones, speakers and televisions. So when you press play, you know you're getting authentic sound, timeless design and unrivaled craftsmanship. Find out more at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. Well, that was Sakari Oromo rather neatly setting out the art of the conductor. And I'm now expecting some equally neat words here in the studio (laughs) from my BBC Music Magazine colleagues. Charlotte Smith, Michael Beek, and Steve Wright. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, have any of you actually ever had a go at conducting yourselves? Uh, I have, um, but I was at school, right. and it was part of my A-level music. And wow. I really don't think I was very good at all. You know, I, obviously, you know, to be a good conductor, you need impeccable sense of timing and a clear beat, but you, I think you also need the ability to let your movements and facial expressions convey a sense of the music's emotion and meaning. And I was way too self-conscious to do that. I'd like to have had a go, though, at school. I'd love to have done it. I've never done it, (laughs) apart from standing in front of the speakers at home with my pencil, you know, wishing, (laughs) imagining myself. Are you one of these people who conducts Marla's Night kind of as you're at home? Oh, whatever it was to, yeah, I'll I'll just, yeah, stand up, chopstick. (laughs) (laughs) Little chopstick in hand. Yes, what's the home instrument of choice? The chopstick. (laughs) Yeah, pencil for me tends to be a... Like a a bit of weight. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Plastic chopstick. Yes, as, I've, as I mentioned in the podcast myself, I've had a, a little go, but I have to admit their their skill is something else, mm. particularly when they move out of the, the standard time signatures of kind of 4-4 four, four, or 3-4. It's when mm. you have mm. a bar of 5-4 followed by 3 or 4-4, four, four, and then the composers all stick a 3-4 or 7-4 we had in a piece I was seven, singing in four. recently. Like, <laughs> and it was really, really tricky. And I, I mean, I really did appreciate that the, the guys who can do it, <laughs> their skill is actually something else. They don't just stand there and... Yeah wave a stick and then no. lap up all the plaudits. It is oh, a big yeah. skill. And even beyond the actual timekeeping, just sort of sculpting the performance. Exactly. Yes. Just, I just find it fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. So what would you say, Charlotte, because you, you've performed at quite a high level as a violinist, what would you say makes a good, good conductor from a performer's point of view? What do you look for? Yeah, I mean, I've performed, so I've performed in some amateur music settings, 
where I've experienced conductors who've had a very free understanding of timekeeping. And that's made for some interesting performances that almost came to a grinding halt, but let's not talk about that. And I've had some at music college who were really hawkish and they wanted everybody to watch them and keep perfectly in time. And that could be quite intimidating, Mm. actually. So I do think that the conductor, you know, he has this authority and he's often physically raised, he or she, sorry, is often physically raised above the rest of the group on a pedestal. And so they do wield this psychological power but anyway, I think from an orchestral player's perspective, I want someone who is clear and has a good understanding of the work and tempos, balance of tempos. And, and I think it's really key that they drive the rehearsal with a sense of efficiency and purpose, because I've also had conductors mm. who spend loads of time on a teeny little bit of music because they're getting really involved in that. And then there's no time to rehearse the rest of the piece. And generally, especially if it's amateur music, there's only three hours. And so you need to get through it quite quickly. So, but yeah, somebody who's warm and enthusiastic, basically. Yeah. Coming from a choral point of view, I've seen, I've sung for when, when I was younger, particularly for some choral conductors who their beat is really actually quite tough to follow. <laughs> they seem to be a kind of a world of their own. Do choral conductors, and you get these kind of floaty hand movements. You think, well, is that the beat, or is what's going on there exactly? And I was actually recently when I was chatting to the Talis scholars. I think Peter Phillips, their conductor himself, would acknowledge this. He has a style all of his own. But of course, he works with the same singers week in, week out. And so they know exactly what to look for. And of course, it's mightily effective. Mm. But whether you put him in another context, how easy it is to follow, I don't know. Mm. Interesting. interesting. I went to an event again celebrating John Williams in London a few weeks ago, and it was with the former principal trombonist of the LSO, and he sort of divulged that Andre Previn was an absolute nightmare. Really? He just waved his arms very indistinctly <laughs> when he was trying to keep time, whereas John Williams, he said, was so specific precise. and precise and said actually he was better than 90% wow. of the conductors they've had conducting them. I just found that fascinating mm, that yes. somebody who you imagine, you yeah. know, would be good <laughs> just <Yeah>. was quite <laughs> unclear. <laughs> And I guess sometimes it's just a conductor who you as a performer bond with. You kind of yeah. find some easier. And you, the violinist might find a conductor really good and the kind of brass at the back might hate him or her. You know, it could yeah. be, it's not always the, the same for each part of the orchestra, is it? So. Totally. Mm-hmm. So do we have any favourite conductors who we like watching or listening to in particular? Bernstein. Bernstein. Uh, I love watching Bernstein. He's just (laughs) so physical. And it's almost like the music is coming out of his pores Mm. because he gets so sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just his face. It's the arms, the way he just pumps the air. It's just fabulous to watch. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I remember watching a video of him performing Nielsen's Third Symphony, which itself is an exciting piece of work. And he's just transported by the music. And you can see that the violin at the orchestra sawing away like mad. And he, you can see that there's some mm. incredible energy in yeah, the room. he's feeling every single yeah. moment. Mm. I mean, in recent years, I've really enjoyed watching Marin Allsop at the proms, actually, yes. mm-hmm. because she's clearly enjoying it so much. The orchestra loves her. The audience loves her. And so it's just this really joyful experience, which is what you want the music to be. Mm. So, yeah. One of my favourites to watch, and he's not flavour of the month at the moment, is Valery Gergiev. Um, however, someone who is still flavour of the month is someone who's actually studied with him, and that's Gian Andrea Nose. Mm. the Italian wow. conductor and again he's he's very emotional and you kind of see him standing on his tiptoes occasionally and it's <laughs> he's just worth watching by himself but he gets the results it's it's brilliant mm. but you can take things a little too far as a conductor with kind of hand movements and gestures and face face movements and gurning <laughs> and we've recently had a, a letter in the magazine itself saying complaining about Simon Rattle's facial movements now of course mm. most people in the audience aren't <laughs> going to see them because they're kind sure. of sitting behind him but do you ever find any conductors off-putting there that are too much of a sort of 
antics, too much of a sort of weirdness going on in front of you? I mean, I, I think I've got a fair few recordings where uh, involving Colin Davis where I can hear how emotionally he's getting involved with the music and you can hear his breathing and kind of urging them on under his breath. As to whether I... I think mostly I find it quite, you know, it's just a sign that the man is living the music. I'm mm. not one of these people who doesn't want to hear a peep out of the conductor. I think if it's a part of the the overall kind of experience, the chemistry taking place in the room, I'm not that put off by that, but I know some people have been. I remember the very first prom I ever went to many years ago, BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, were conducted by the pole Jertsey Matsimiuk, who, who grunted and shouted. He was one of them. Okay, and that's was, a bit much. <laughs> I was only about sure kind of 11 or 12 at the time. I said, Dad, what's going on there? You know, <laughs> why is he doing that? He said, well, just some conductors do. Mm. Oh, the equivalent the of grunting in a tennis match. Not yeah, great. Isn't it? <laughs> 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 but yeah, there's um, Barbara Rolly, a bit mm. like Colin Davis. You can hear what he thinks of a lot of the music he's conducting. You kind of hear him singing along. It's, wow, interesting. I don't mind it. It's, well, it's, like it's all it. part of the musical mm. kind yeah. of thing, isn't it? Right, I should point out that none of us kind of gurn or grunt in the BBC Music Magazine office when we're working. It's a place of to. absolute harm. We try not to. <laughs> and that rather nicely brings to an end our All the Right Notes study of the art of conducting. And here to show how it should be done is Zachary Oromo himself. And he's conducting the BBC Symphony Orchestra in the Symphony by Dora Pajacevic. <laughs> Do you want to be part of a global community of people who are passionate about sound? Join the House of Bang & Olufsen for the latest news on sound innovation, as well as invites to exclusive events, special offers and behind-the-scenes content. You'll also be the first to receive information about new and limited series products, from atelier editions to highly coveted collaborations. Sign up today at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. <laughs> 